I just threw everything into this. Like, for example, someone who's pursuing acting, like maybe they're working as a waiter or a waitress to support their being able to go to auditions and whatnot. Whereas I just threw caution to the wind and was like, nope, no work. We're going to go audition every single day until we land that part. And then hopefully that part will give us the freedom to like continue to audition in the future. And there's a lot that goes along with that of me having the right support system to stretch my money really far in terms of people hosting me. Not everyone has that, but I think knowing that about myself, I was able to just like really just jump off off the cliff and hope that I could build the plane before I hit the ground. What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to my social life. It's the podcast where we learn how to grow on social media by talking to people that have actually done it. I'm your host, Jacob Kelly. As always, today's podcast is powered by TrueFan. And before we get into today's conversation with Rob Lawless, there's a couple things that we need to go over first. If you enjoyed today's podcast, be sure to leave us a positive rating interview, share this episode with a friend, and subscribe to the show. But a brand new interviews every single Tuesday, and a brand new takeaways episode is an audio exclusive where I sit down and break down the most recent podcast episode of the week. Every Every single Thursday. And now, today on the podcast, we are joined by Rob Lawless, who goes by Rob's 10K Friends on Instagram. And he's on a mission to do just that, make 10,000 friends by meeting 10,000 strangers for one-on-one meaningful conversation. As of right now, he has met 4,680 people, and I cannot be more excited to have him here on the podcast today. Rob, welcome to the show. Jacob, thank you for having me, man. I appreciate it. I'm excited to have you here, man. Where I want to start today, I just want to know who was Rob before he started meeting 10,000 strangers? It depends. Rob, as a kid, was growing up in the Philadelphia suburbs as the youngest of three. So I've always been involved in a bunch of different things. Like I went to Catholic school from kindergarten up through 12th grade. So in grade school, it was basketball, or rather it was soccer in the fall, basketball in the winter, and track and field in the spring. So always doing something like that. And then in high school, it was soccer and golf, but it was also student council. It was National Honor Society. It was uh, a community service club. I started working at 14 years old as a, a cashier at Chick-fil-A. And at 16, I transitioned into kind of like secretary work at a a financial firm. And then in college, it was just being equally as involved. I went to Penn State University and I was in a fraternity there. I was part of a, a fundraiser for the fight against pediatric cancer called the Penn State Dance Marathon. I built houses for Habitat for Humanity and I was a tour guide. So I gave tours to prospective students and had like this amazing group of friends from all these different things, which was a huge part of who I am today and why I've chosen this path for myself. Um, But I was also a finance major. So I graduated in 2013, did consulting for Deloitte Consulting for a year and three months, did tech sales after that for a tech startup in Philadelphia. And then I decided to go on this crazy journey. So, yeah. And so you said Deloitte was one year and three months? Yes. But from my understanding, you knew pretty much in the first month that wasn't for you, right? That is true. I knew very early on that it was, I don't know, I think a lot of people go into their jobs and their professions and they recognize that they're miserable, but their mindset is, well, it's work. 
So I'm not supposed to enjoy it. Like I'm supposed to work is supposed to be a drag, but then it allows me to do things outside of that that I enjoy. And a lot of people will go through their life and they kind of do that trade of time for money to do what they like. But for me, I just refused to do that. And I think a big part of it was minoring in entrepreneurship and, and being interested in entrepreneurship and feeling like the people who went down that path had both. I'm curious what took you, so if you realized very early on, even within potentially that first month, what took you the additional year to make the decision to finally leave? Was it just the fact that Deloitte was your reach job and you got it? And so leaving that was kind of a hard mindset shift for you to take or what ultimately had to happen for you to feel comfortable stepping away to go work at RJ Metrics? I, so I'm a very logical person and I had like $30,000 of student loans when I graduated. So it's a pretty good motivation to stay in a good job. And I had a great salary at Deloitte. And with consulting, one of the nice things about it is you're changing projects every few months. And that's when I probably realized it wasn't the right path for me because my favorite part of working there was rolling off of projects and on to the next one. And yeah, it was just that change of scenery that I enjoyed because I worked in Jersey City. I worked in Kentucky for four months. I was in Philly. I did three months in New York City. So I was hopping around a bit, but my mindset was I'm never going to seek to leave Deloitte because I know I'm in a really good position here. And they were going to pay for me to get my MBA from one of the top schools in the country. But I also had this mindset if the right opportunity pops up, I'm not going to say no to it. And what happened is I was on a project with a consultant in Kentucky and he would fly in from Houston every week and I would fly in from Philadelphia. And just through our conversations, he said, my friend Ben is uh, one of my good friends from high school, is the director of sales at this startup in Philadelphia. You should have a chat with him. So I talked to Ben and looked into his company. And I was like, hey, man, I'm not trying to join your company, but I'm interested in how you went from private equity to the startup world, because perhaps someday I'll go from consulting to the startup world. And yeah, the more I learned about their company, the more intrigued I became by it. And they had like 7 million at the time. And then I interviewed with them and then they raised an additional 16 and a half million after my interview. And they brought me on as a result of that. And so was it a similar type job then at RJ Metrics? Was it different? It was different. I, so at Deloitte, I was doing strategy and operations consulting, which at the analyst level is a lot of taking notes on calls it's a lot of formatting PowerPoints and Excel sheets and like putting together project management reports or just making sure that you're staying on schedule, which is in a, a place like Deloitte, obviously like you have the, the capital, the human capital to do that, the, the resources. But then I went into the, the startup world and I was doing sales for them. So I've always been a people person and to me it felt a bit more people focused. I learned through it that it's more of like, a system than a personal thing. But yeah, I was doing sales for the tech startup. So a lot of emailing random founders of companies and, and different directors of marketing of companies, trying to get them on a phone call so I could understand their pain points around metrics, like measuring their business and then come in with how our product would be a good solution for them. And then, so did the project start, it started briefly when you were at RJ Metrics, right? Like you started it before you left, if I'm not mistaken, like your 10,000 friends project? Yes. I worked for RJ Metrics from October of 2014 until 
July of 2016. And I started this project, the 10K Friends project, in November of 2015. But the impetus for the for the project started was January 2014, right? Because you originally had the idea was it was to meet 10,000 people in a year, 10 minutes at a time? Yes. So what's a similar question to realizing you wanted to leave Deloitte and taking over a year? What had to happen in that year plus time for you to have this original idea and actually act on it? Because that's something I'm really curious about. I think my audience is curious about too. Because like for me with this podcast, I waited, like I think I got all the gear in like January and I didn't actually start putting episodes out until July. Like I had the idea, I even started actioning on some of the behind the scenes stuff, but I didn't actually take the jump for a long time. So like what were you waiting for in that period and what ultimately led caused you to start? What probably happened is I had the idea and I was excited about it, but then I probably got busy with work and, and life at Deloitte. And um, I don't know, maybe there's like a sense of contentment at the time where you're like, okay, I'll just stay in this path. I had a girlfriend at the time, so she was taking up a lot of my mental capacity. And then I switched jobs from Deloitte to RJ Metrics. And the, the things that did happen is I was writing um, journal entries in my iPhone and I called them thoughts on the way to success, which sounds really cocky, but I was like, if I'm ever successful, this will be cool to look back on someday. And I only wrote three of them. And I think the first one, I might've still been at Deloitte, but the second and third I had left and gone to RJ metrics. And there's a lot of fear around that of, did I screw up by leaving a paid for MBA on the table? and taking a pay cut and going to this risky place where I was in this very safe place. So I was capturing those moments. And the, uh, the other big thing that happened was when I was with Deloitte, I was living back with my parents because I traveled so often. And when I started working for this tech startup in Philly, I moved into the city with two friends. So that was a huge shift. And I think that was probably a big contributor to it was I, I felt a lot like I was arriving to Philly in the city the same way that I arrived to Penn State. And when I went to Penn State, I had this, this act of creating all of these new relationships. So I felt like I could do the, th the same thing with Philadelphia. And I wanted to know the people of the city because when I was at Penn State, I would walk around and I'd always run into people that I knew. And I didn't have that in Philly. So the idea of capturing that seemed really exciting to me. And I was like, oh, I have this idea. I've never taken action on it. And because I was doing 30-minute sales calls for RJ Metrics, then I was like, okay, I'm not going to do 10 minutes with each person. I'm going to do an hour with each person because then we could run out of time or not run out of time. We could run out of topics to talk about. And that would force us to dive to a deeper level. And I was like, that's what I want. And so then that first meeting was Jim Brady at Cozy, right? Yes. November 11th of 2015. I mean, that just happened. Well, the anniversary just passed. Yeah. Just, just a couple weeks ago. But so bring me back to that, that first meeting. Are you nervous? Like are, what's going through your mind as you're going in for this, for this meeting? Like how are just, how are you feeling that first, that first meeting? It's hard to say looking back on it because I think I'm a much more skilled conversationalist now. I'm sure there was some social anxiety going into it. Something that I felt back then that I don't feel now is I hope this person feels like this is worth their time because I had nothing to show for it, right? I had no Instagram account at that point. There was nothing that I could point to and be like, hey, this is a thing. So by being part of this, you're being part of something cool. 
all I had was me sending an email being like, I have this idea to meet 10,000 people. Do you want to be one of the first 10? And he didn't even know that. Like, I met with him and he's like, oh, so what number am I? 1,000, 2,000? I was like, no, dude, you're the start of the project. It's like, you are kicking things off right now. And I'm happy he didn't know that because maybe he wouldn't have met with me if, it, if, he, if he did know it was so new. But he did. And I just remember having a good conversation with him. He worked for like the Washington Post, I believe. So his career was kind of in journalism. And he was telling me about his road trips across the country with his dog. And it, it was a cool enough experience that I wanted to do it again. And so I did. And I met, he was the only person I met that month. And then the next month I met four people. And then it kind of just increased from there. And ultimately you decided to take it full time. Like meeting strangers full time when RJ Metrics was acquired, right? That was the impetus. What did you see then? Kind of so when that acquisition happens, how did you know that you could do this full time? Because you know, from the outside looking in, like hearing I just I meet strangers, I make friends for a living. Like I could never picture how you could take that full time. So what did you see from the project? You're like, I think I can pull this off doing it full time. I think just the the state of Instagram at the time. One is I thought it was a unique interesting idea and my mindset was if you're doing something unique and interesting that people want to pay attention to you can find a way to fund that whether it's through partnerships or like GoFundMe which I never really considered but there are just different ways to do that and I think probably like I think there's an Instagram account called do you travel and he was like one of the early travel influencers who was living such a cool life back when Instagram was a bit more pure. And people were like, oh, that's so cool. So then they followed him but because he had all these followers. Brands wanted to work with him. And I just thought there was a lot of goodwill associated with meeting people. So eventually a brand like Verizon, for example, I use their phone network. So I was like, well, I'm using your network to upload all of these stories about connection to share people's stories. So why that would, to me, seems like something that you would want to share with other people and support. I've not partnered with them, but it's uh, that was just my mindset. And also at the time with Humans of New York, so I found out about Humans of New York <clears throat> because when I was dating that girl, I told her about my idea and she's an aspiring actress. So she was living in New York City and she's like, there's this guy here who's doing this project of photographing all these different people. So I sent him an email in January of 2014 and I was like, hey, I heard you're doing something similar. Um, but the more I looked into his work at that point, before I was going full time, he had the New York Times bestseller and he was able to leverage it into a speaking career. And I remember looking up his net worth at the time. And I I think it was like in the multiple millions, maybe like four, five million or something like that. And this was six years after he started his project. And I remember thinking, I was like, oh, man, if I had $1 million after six years of doing this, like, I'd be totally fine. And now six years later, I'm like a million dollars away from that mark. But I think seeing something like him to me was proof that the market would accept it. And then the whole Instagram world, and I guess you could throw YouTube into that as well. But yeah, just content creation seemed like a path at the time. 
And I'm curious too, I mean, you have the the social media influences, but did your job in high school where you worked for the financial advisor have any influence where I believe it was there you saw that you didn't need a massive team or a huge company to become successful? It was a smaller team, but he was a wildly successful individual. So did that have any influence on you as well? It did. I think in terms of being able to be someone who like that, the fact that you don't have to be a Deloitte or you don't have to be Coca-Cola to be successful. You could be a small operation. And a lot of his success was just tied to the fact that he was in the office every morning at 6 a.m. and He was there Monday through Saturday. He only took Sundays off. So I think that probably piqued my interest in entrepreneurship a lot as well. And it gave me the the idea of like, hey, this being a business owner seems like a good alternative path to this traditional path that we're all so used to. So yeah, I think in terms of why I wanted to go into entrepreneurship or be a business owner myself, that was probably like one of the biggest inspirations early on. And had RJ Metrics not been acquired, when when do you think you would have ultimately taken the jump to full time? Because then being acquired and you no longer having a job was kind of like, well, now there's a there's no better time than now. But had the company not been acquired and had kept going, how much longer do you think you would have stayed before you took that job? I I don't know. And it's funny because sometimes when other people share my story, it's funny to see how your story can be misconstrued in so many different ways. Not in not on purpose either. Just because kind of like whisper down the lane. So Sometimes people are like, yeah, he's interviewing 10,000 different people. I'm like, no, I haven't interviewed anyone. I just want to have a two-way chat with people. But another thing that people will be like, yeah, he quit his job at Deloitte to go meet people full time. I'm like, no, I didn't. I had this whole other tech startup job in between and I was laid off from that job. And that's why I started doing this full time. But I do have Gchat messages with my brother in probably... March or April of 2016, because in February 2016, 20% of my company had been laid off, but I was one of the people that they kept. And I remember talking to my brother and telling him if I had met 50 people by June, I was just going to quit and go into this full time. Um, and he was like, no, you, you can't do that because you need money to survive. And um, by the time June rolled around, I had met over 100 people. So I had hit my mark, but at that point I was just waiting for the layoff to occur because I wanted that month of severance because I wanted to do this with kind of training wheels, if if you want to call it that way, like a little bit of a safety net to see what it felt like to do it full time. And when I was first laid off, I always told people, I'm going to do it two to three months full time. And if it's working, I'll keep going. And if not, I'll go back to... Deloitte, like I'll go back to KPMG, EY, PwC, whatever. I can go back to that safety net of consulting and have a great salary and continue to build my career. But yeah, I don't know when I would have taken the leap. I like to think it would have not been far after that, but that's a hard thing to say because I think it's easier to dive into it when the safety's ripped away from you as opposed to when you still have a hold of it. So do you have any advice for someone who's kind of in that situation where they're working a decent job and they have this thing they want to do full-time, but they just can't bring themselves to take that step? I think there's, uh, I've heard a lot of people say like, do the thing that you love until it becomes, until you get so busy doing that, that what you're currently doing, like your, 
your, your safety job or your nine to five is starting to get in the way of your creative work. And then at that time, it's the, it's the, at that point, it's the time to jump. I think my path was a little bit different in a way because I just threw everything into this. Like, for example, someone who's pursuing acting, like maybe they're working as a waiter or a waitress to support their being able to go to auditions and whatnot. Whereas I just threw caution to the wind and was like, nope, no work. We're going to go audition every single day until we land that part. And then hopefully that part will give us the freedom to like continue to audition in the future. And there's a lot that goes along with that of me having the right support system to stretch my money really far in terms of people hosting me. Not everyone has that, but I think knowing that about myself, I was able to just like really just jump off off the cliff and hope that I could build the plane before I hit the ground. Why do you think so many people have been willing to help you along the journey? You know, like I know you've been flown out to, I think it was Hawaii or someone gave you their buddy pass, I believe, uh, so you could fly to Hawaii. People have flown you out to Seattle, Toronto, all these different places. What do you think it is about Rob's 10K friends that has people just so willing and able to help? I think the authenticity of it and like people can see my passion for it. Because when I meet with people, there's nothing that I want from them. And I think that goes against how a lot of human interaction happens nowadays. And it's like, I want to meet you. I want to share your story, what I've learned from you. And then I'm going to go on with my life. And if we want to keep in touch, that's great. We can do that. But I'm not going to come back around and be like, hey, so let me talk to you about the extended warranty on your car or whatever. You know, like there's no hidden thing. And I think people really enjoy that. But I, I do think the passion is a big part. What is it? I think it's the alchemist where it's like, it, or the, it's like when you know where you're going, like the universe will conspire to help you. Or it's like the world steps aside for the man who knows where he's going or a woman who knows where she's going. And I think it's partly that, like they've seen how much of I've put of myself into this, that for them, it almost becomes a joy for them to help further that process. And I've had that happen in so many different ways from like literally people like me meeting with a, a woman in California and she's like, hey, here's 20 bucks for gas money because I know you're driving around to all these meetings. Or someone being like, yeah, I'll partner with you. I'll give you $300 for the month to tag me in every post. Like my first partnership with the mom and pop pharmacy. Um, or yes, total strangers have hosted me in their houses as I've driven across the country. But I think the passion and the authenticity are probably the two big things. And so you mentioned with the, the alchemist there, like with the passion, like the world just kind of opens up. I'm sure it has, like that does happen, but it hasn't been that easy. I'm assuming like, I'm assuming, I think it was only a couple of years ago, summer 2018, you only had like $500 to your name or something like that. So it's not like it's all, it's been sunshine and rainbows the entire time. Like it has been incredible, but there's also probably been some hardship and I'm curious how you push through in those tough moments, like how you overcome self-doubt as someone who's doing a very untraditional path where you're seeing your friends and progress, like not progress, but like get married, have kids, settle down and you're still, you're doing your projects. Like how do you overcome those tough moments? I think a lot of it is like, one, I have the perspective of having met so many different people. So I can understand that me having $500 to my name when I have a great support system. I have a finance degree. I have Deloitte on my resume. Like, it sounds scary, right? Because it's $500. But at the end of the day, I have the connections to go get a job, to 
to really lift myself back up if I if I ultimately want to. And not everyone has that. And there are people who are struggling with, like, let's say, like cancer, for example. I met a girl who is 24, um, who I know you recently had Joe from OPL on your, and she, I was on his podcast recently, and she was also a guest on his podcast. And I, she had bone cancer at 24 years old. And having that perspective of like, okay, this person is going through this. And my biggest worry right now is that I have this amount of money to my name. So that's part of it. The other part is like, well, I don't want to, I don't want to have everything that I've done up to this point be a waste. I don't want all that effort that I put into this to just stop because things are getting scary. So I have always tried to frame like approaching zero as not a scary thing, but just I used to say like it doesn't mean it's the end of the road. It just means that there's a more inconvenient path forward than I had anticipated. And I think that I actually haven't thought about that in a while because I have been able to swing things up from then. But my motto at that time was from the Kid Cudi song. It was a line, the end is never the end. And that was a huge learning lesson for me because the fear kicks in a lot earlier than it absolutely needs to because it wants to stop you from getting to that bad place. But if you can continue to push forward through that, then you can experiment and tinker along the way to get yourself out of that situation. And it's like, yeah, the end is never the end. Like if I hit $0 in my bank account, I'm sure I could hop on a GoFundMe, throw it up on my Instagram stories and be like, hey, everyone, I've pushed as far as I could go, but I just couldn't get there. Like I just need a little bit of help until I can find a part-time job or whatever. I'm sure people would be willing to help with uh, like job opportunities and things like that. So I just became conscious of that as well. And it's like, hey, there's an opportunity always to push forward here. I just have to find it. I really like that. The end is never the end. Like in 99.999% of situations, life goes on. And so you have the ability to bounce back. I think that's just great. And having that perspective that like you might be approaching zero, but you don't have bone cancer. Like I think that's also really, really important. I really like that. And, but what about like, so when doing something like this, that's again, not a traditional path, I'm assuming like there's obviously self-doubt that occurs with that, but there's also probably like doubt from family and friends, I'm assuming. Like, I believe it was actually, I think it was, you were at a bar or something and you overheard one of your friends saying 10,000 was such an unrealistic number. Like, how do you like push through one on your, there's the self-doubt you have to push through, but there's also kind of the doubt and the whispers of the friends and family that might not necessarily believe in the projects. Like, how do you keep going when that's happening? I think it's, I have one, like, uh, an unwavering belief in myself. I, I trust myself, and I think I have calibrated that over the years. And I think two of the ways that I can think back to doing that, specifically when I was a student at Penn State, one is going to the gym, and two is performing on tests. <clears throat> so what I mean by that is I made it a priority to go to the gym. I made it part of my schedule. So Monday, Wednesday, Friday, I'd go to the gym and I'm still the same way. And I just don't miss it. It's not like if I absolutely have to and I can't make it, I'll cut it out. But there's no days where I'm like, oh, I'm lazy today. I don't feel like going. I've noticed that if I set parameters for myself, I can stick to them. Um, And when it came to studying too, like if I would take a test and I wouldn't know the answer, but I felt like it was C, for example, if it's ABC. 
if I felt like it was C, then subconsciously I would, or I would tell myself like subconsciously, you probably think it's C because somewhere in what you studied helps you know that that's the answer. And more often than not, I would get those questions right. So I learned to trust myself even when I didn't fully know on the surface if I was doing the right thing. And I guess it's like the same thing as trusting your gut or your intuition. As I calibrated that in college, then I became trusting of myself to do what I said I was going to do as an adult, meaning meeting 10,000 people. The other thing is I always said that with my project, it's a silly idea until it's not. And, and it's, it's, it's certainly held true. Like in the beginning, I've had people who laughed at me when I said I was going to meet 10,000 people and they'd be like, well, how many people have you met? And I'm like eight. And then they just laugh. And it's like, I know I've met eight now, but I can't skip straight to 4,000. You know, you have to put in the work to do one, two, three, four, five, six. And over time, I saw that shift as it went from people laughing and questioning it to people being like, wait, what is this thing you're doing? To people being like, this is inspiring. I want to be a part of it. To people being like, oh my God, this is awesome. Like, it's the coolest thing I've ever heard. It's so unique. And not only is it just like in my town, these people are messaging me this from like India or Latvia or Germany. So that has helped too. And I, I think, yeah, just thinking about it too, like it's, it's been hard for my parents to wrap their heads around my path because I was doing exactly what they wanted me to do. I had the right path for them. They were like, yes, he's like in the winning game. Like you need the touchdown. Like he's on the goal line. And then I just like punted it backwards. <laughs> I was like, yeah, I'm going to do this different thing with my life. But yeah, it's been hard for them to grasp. And that's been a struggle at times. But my close friends have all been super supportive of me. My brother has been a super supportive person from the start. My sister questioned me from the start, but she's since come around. And my parents are coming around too now because it's starting to work out. And like some of the fears that they have are starting to be relieved. But yeah, the, the people that were close to me that were supporting me were super cool. And the other thing is, again, it goes back to the people that I'm meeting. Like, even if I had a, a family member or a friend question me, every day I'd be meeting with someone either face to face back then or in current days on a call. And they're like, oh, this is so cool. Like, I can't wait to see you get to 10,000. I'm so excited for you. The guy I spoke with last night was like, dude, I don't know you, but I'm proud of you. And I was like, thanks, man. I appreciate that. So that helped balance it out as well. So now the tide is turning like one, just from a from belief perspective, you know, people are starting, I feel like people have been believing, like I've been following your project from a distance. I feel like for a number of years now, and I've seen you just, the numbers are going up in terms of how many people follow you. You said even like just kind of qualitatively, the family's starting to see things work out. Now you said from a financial standpoint, things are starting to swing the other way. So from like, from the, from the business side of it, how have you been able to, to turn things around now? What have you done to, to turn that tide from a financial standpoint and make this a more secure job? The big, so the biggest shift occurred this summer. I had laryngitis in May and I couldn't speak. I've had a sore, like a, a hoarse voice before, but I literally couldn't speak. It hurt to talk. So I put out on my Instagram stories like, hey, I want to try to have 10 speaking gigs by August 15th, like 10 gigs booked for the upcoming year. If you can connect me to your school or your company, please let me know. And I had students be like, talk to this person at this school or talk to this person at this school. 
And uh, then I started landing these gigs and <clears throat> they'd be like, what's your rate? I'd be like, I don't know, like one to $2,000. <laughs> I had no idea. And some of them were like, yeah, cool, that works. And then others were like, why are you underselling yourself? You should be charging $4,000 to $10,000. Or like, we'd be comfortable with paying $10,000. And I was like, I'm comfortable with that too. We should do that. So <laughs> uh, I just, I started to realize that that was a big opportunity for me. And I had kind of known that. I met a girl named Michelle Poehler. She runs an account called Hello Fears on Instagram. She is my biggest inspiration when it comes to speaking. And when I met her in August of 2019, she told me about how she did this project, 100 Days Without Fear. She uploaded a video every day of herself conquering a new fear. And for the 100th fear, she did a TEDx talk and someone approached her and they said, you should go into public speaking because you could charge five grand per speech. And she was like, wow, that sounds awesome. <clears throat> so she did that. And then over the next three years, she raised her rate to like 17 grand per speech. Now, if you go to book her, it's between 20 and 30 grand. And she's spoken at some huge places like brands and, and conferences. And I got to see her and understand that that was something that I could potentially achieve as well. And I still look up to her in that way. I still look up to her being like, maybe I can get to 20 to 30 grand at some point. And I think it's possible. I think it's just a matter of one, being a good speaker and connecting the message to your audience, and two, getting the right resume, like building it over time with schools and corporations. So I've started to do that a lot. Like one of the first gigs I had this summer was with Amazon. And how did I land that? I met someone from Amazon as part of my project. And she was like, hey, we need a speaker. Do you want to come speak here? And the same thing with all the schools and whatnot. So I'm really trying to grow that now. And the important thing is, it's like now I have a product, right? That's repeatable. My product is my message that I can share with a group of employees or a group of students. And now I can go back to Sales Rob from RJ Metrics, re-implement that system of like reaching out to a certain number of people a day, getting them on the call, talking about the value I can provide. And it just becomes a process of filling the funnel and capturing the output. Of course, making money is important. Like you have to do it in order to survive. But even when you took the jump to doing this full time, did making, bringing money into the equation of the 10,000 friends, did that make it lose some of the fun even in the beginning? Like now that you had to focus on this other thing and not just on the aspect of meeting people? I don't think it made it lose some of the fun because I think part of the fun for me is the entrepreneurial journey. And I've always thought like that this would be a cool way to make money. Like I, I, I think back then when I was like, yeah, if you can do something that you love and make money, then you can use that money to fund doing what you love. And it becomes this like circle of harmony almost. And that to me sounded cool. And I've realized uh, along the way, like I now understand artists who are like, I just want to be able to make enough money to create my art. I just want to be able to make enough money to play in front of an audience. And before I didn't really understand that because I was in that finance world, I was like, I need to make enough money where I can quit and retire and live out my days doing what I want to do. Like it, I didn't understand the idea that you, your career could be something that you loved, even though that was something I wanted to shoot for. Like I just un didn't understand it from an artistic standpoint. And now I do, but yeah, the, the, the chase of the money was always part of the fun. And it's, it's such a, 
it's like such a problem solving issue that requires you to like think and and iterate the way that you're approaching things a good example being like before may before i had laryngitis i was meeting four people a day and i was tired at the end of the day after like talking to to four people and i would want to do things like speaking things and i would try to do them but i would do it with a slow kind of rate of success and then when things started to pick up i was like all right i'm dropping to three people a day and then i'm going to spend that extra 2 hours prospecting for gigs or watching videos on how to speak learning how to write a speech or whatever and with that tweak it's like all of a sudden all these opportunities start coming in it reminds me of oh man i'm going to forget the name of it the imitation game where it's the movie where they're trying to crack the code of the germans in world war 2 and there's like all these different dials that are spinning and turning and all of a sudden they all click into place and then they're like oh we got it that is what's going on in my mind of like all the different dials that I'm trying to turn and tinker to like click into place to make sure I can do this as an actual path that's interesting and so it was just what do you think like what allowed everything to click was just reallocating your time and dedicating a little bit more to doing the speaking gigs yes that was a big switch for me and but I can't say that if I had done it earlier it would have been a good thing because reallocating it now when I'm 4600 people into this journey like I needed meeting people to be the biggest focus for the longest time because the only reason I have credibility to get up on a stage and talk to people is because I've met so many different people and largely a lot of it is really just because of life since covid where I used to I met 3259 people in person covid happens I'm forced to go virtual and then i meet 1400 people from like 85 different countries and now all of a sudden i have all of this perspective of what it's like to interact with people of different races different religions different like sexual orientations genders whatever and now i can apply this to what a work environment wants to get to or what a school wants to get to so yeah i don't know i feel like everything has happened the way it's supposed to happen but i needed to take that switch at that time this summer um, it was really important. When you first started, I'm curious if you had like an expectation that I'm doing such a cool thing that brands will come to me, speaking gigs will just fall in my lap because I'm doing such a cool thing. And in making that, and part of the reason you hadn't made the switch, it was because you thought people would ultimately come to you. Like I first thought like going back to this podcast, like that would be something that would eventually happen. Like people would be reaching out to me to come on the show, things like that. Um, is that something you thought where these deals would come, start kind of coming to you, but now that you started going out to the people and reaching out yourself, that that's why the increase is really happening? It's, it's a bit of both. I, Cause I have had people come to me. Like my biggest gig to date was someone who saw me talking about speaking on LinkedIn and then shot me a message and was like, Hey, we have an inclusion event that we need someone to speak at. Would you come do it? So they did come to me, thankfully. Um, but that was definitely my mindset back then. If we reverse to Rob one year into this project and we're having this conversation, my mindset was similar to yours where I thought, Oh, this will be so interesting that brands will want to come talk to me and partner with me and I'll do it on a monthly basis. So this month I'll have Verizon. Next month I'll have Fossil. The month after that I'll have Apple. <clears throat> and I was like, yeah, my project's gonna be so interesting to people that so many brands are gonna be interested in it. 
that they're just going to be fighting over who can sponsor me and throw money my way. And they're thinking back now, it's like there's so much naivety to that thought. But that's also such a necessary part of moving forward. And I think what I've learned is like, I'm probably super naive right now about what I think about the future. But having that confidence or having that optimism is going to ha- actually give me the time to take steps necessary to create that future. Whereas if I didn't have that naivety or that confidence, then I'd, I'd never start and I'd never get anywhere. So, yeah, I, I thought brands would come to me and then I realized, okay, it's going to be a lot more of you going to them. But then, you know, certain brands, like you get a partnership and then you start to get comfortable and then you forget that you have to reach out to people. And I've had that reminder several times. One of the biggest instances was I had 60 Second Docs, which is a big Instagram account that does one minute videos on people and Upworthy. They both reached out to me on the same day. This was October 4th, 24, or October 4th of 2018. I was just about to leave LA to drive back to Philly um, after spending nine months in LA. And I was like, this is crazy. Like, Both of these people reach out to me on the same day. They're huge outlets for me to share my story. And Upworthy was like, we're going to pitch your story along with two others to Subaru. We're doing a partnership with them. They're ultimately the ones that decide. But internally, you're our champion. We want you to be the story they go with. And I was like, nice. 60 Second Docs just straight up was like, we love what you're doing. We want to do a story on you. I was like, nice. So I kind of, to taper my expectations, thought maybe Upworthy won't work out. But 60 Second Docs is in the bag. Two weeks later, Upworthy messages me back. They say, hey, unfortunately, Subaru went with the other story. Okay, I thought that might might have happened. 60 Second Docs, we're trying to plan when we're going to film in, in LA. It doesn't end up happening. We're like, okay, well, let's just do it once you're back in Philly. And I was like, that's cool because I would rather show off Philadelphia than Los Angeles. Philly could use more love. I'm from there. I would rather showcase my own city. And set up all the filming, got permission from the people, the place that I was going to film at. The person who was coordinating it got sick, lost contact with all the videographers. They all got put on long-term projects. Seemed like, and then they just I, like never heard from them again. So both of these opportunities that I thought were going to be huge for me were just taken away. And I got to this place where I was like, man, no one cares about this project anymore because neither of these worked out. And then it goes back to meeting people. I met people who reminded me that I needed to push myself forward. So I made a list of like 100 different publications in Google Sheets, and I was like, I'm going to hit up every single one of them, and I'm going to tell them about my story, and that's how I'm going to pull myself out of this funk. And I probably got through like 10, 15 of them before I really got back on track, and then I was able to continue moving forward. But yeah, I do think there's this push and pull between getting opportunities and, and or going out and finding them, and sometimes them coming to you, but really you have to create them for yourself. I think that's a huge takeaway for me and then the person listening to this podcast that like, yes, brands will come inbound sometimes, but like you can really get a lot of momentum moving for yourself if you take the ball in your own court and you go out and you do that outreach yourself. And the other thing too is that nothing's guaranteed. Like those two stories you shared with 60 Second Stocks and Upworthy, um, that there's no, nothing's, like the bag was pretty much secured in that case and they both 
disappeared, evaporated, which was not what you thought the outcome was going to be. So I think that's two really important lessons for, for myself. And like I said, the, the person listening to this, um, but now I'm curious kind of now that you're now, what's the, the, the day structure look like? You said you've cut down to three meetings per day and then two hours a day is focused on, I guess you say like three hours a day or however long it takes to meet the three people is the, the meeting, making new friends side and then the business side is another two hours a day. Is that kind of what the day looks like right now? In theory, yeah. It's my schedule. I'll run you through my daily schedule. So I wake up around seven. I have my first meeting from eight to nine. And nine to 10, I'm writing about that person I'm posting. So for your listeners, like on my page, I have a picture with everyone. I have a one minute clip from our Zoom chat since everything is virtual now. And then I have like a paragraph about their life and what I've learned from them. So I do all of that in an hour. Like it's cutting that one minute that I feel represents that person in Zoom, airdropping it to myself, going to TikTok, adding captions there because I don't know a better way to do this. And then screen recording that video, then cutting that to make sure that it's cropped and looks like it wasn't just something that was screen recorded in TikTok. And then I put it all together and I package it and I post it within an hour of meeting the person that I just met. And then at 10, I go into my next meeting. 10 to 11, I'm meeting the second person. 11 to noon, writing, cutting, posting their story. Noon to one is lunch. And then one to two is meeting and two to three is the last like writing and posting. So ideally from three to, to five is that kind of business time. But I've also started to think about my life kind of like a financial portfolio, which is I have this limited amount of time. What can I, what buckets can I put that into? Or like, how can I split that time in the most effective manner? So I like to go to the gym Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and it gets busier at five than it is at or 3.30. So I have to fight this traditional mindset of like, I should be working until 5 p.m. Sometimes I feel guilty if I'm not doing that or 6 p.m. or whatever. But I fight that and I'm like, I'm going to go to the gym to get that out of the way because my health is just as important as everything else. And then I'll come back and I'll do the prospecting and stuff into the evening. And that's kind of what ends up happening is the rest of the day becomes this mix. Whereas like last night, at 8.30 p.m., like I have the Giants-Bucks game on in the background, but what I'm doing is researching the best business checking accounts to get a bank account set up for my business. And before that, I'm messaging people to confirm the times for tomorrow, and I'm setting up times with people for next week. And I'm also listening to podcasts about public speaking. The Speaker Lab is a great one that I've come across recently. There's another one called Steal the Show. So I'm watching videos on these people trying to like learn as much as I can. So it's kind of sporadic throughout the day, but it's the eight, 10 and one is always meeting people. And then the rest of the day is like this mix mash of doing stuff for the project. And my weekends look like that as well. Like Saturday, Sunday is a lot of doing stuff for the project as well. Not typically because I like to keep that open just for like friends and family, but there's a lot of like back office stuff, we'll call it, that needs to be done for the project or just being like an LLC in general or figuring out how taxes work. Like these are, there's so much stuff that goes into running a business 
that is you know like they talk about icebergs that it's just the tip of it that you can see above the water and then the mass of it is underneath that's like running a business and I still feel like I'm drinking from a fire hose every day when it comes to that stuff and like setting up retirement accounts or financially to make sure that I don't have a, an employer paying into a 401k. So how do I make sure that I am being conscious of that to set myself up for when I'm 65 or whatever? So yeah, a lot of, a lot of that like additional stuff that occurs. One thing I was going to say to you before I forget for your subtitles, I would look up a website called headliner.app. Um, and the data, they do auto transcription and you can, so you can do it all from your computer and then airdrop it with subtitles. Um, so I just want to throw that out there before I forgot, I used to use that all the time back in the day. Um, so I highly recommend headliner if you're looking for another way to do, to do your subtitles. Um, but one thing, actually, another thing that I have meant to ask before I forget, what does your outreach look like to brands? Like what is like tactically, what does that message look like? Cause I feel like people hear all the time, like just like reach out to brands, whether it be like creators looking for brand deals, whatever it might be. But how do you structure that, that message when you first reach out to a brand? I think one of the important, so to start, it's like trying to figure out who the appropriate contact is. Right. So I landed a partnership with WeWork that was nine months long. And that was a huge partnership for me to help me continue doing this. The way that I landed that partnership, I searched on LinkedIn, probably like WeWork Director of Partnerships or WeWork Head of Partnerships, found out who had that title. And then there are sites like uh, Hunter.io, I think is the name, or it used to be MailTester.com, which was a great one. But there are these sites where you can check the validity of someone's email. So for example, like if I'm Rob Lawless and I'm working at WeWork and I'm trying to guess what my email is, chances are it's either rob at wework.com if it's a smaller company, or it's rlawless at wework.com, or it's rob.lawless at wework.com. And Hunter.io, I think, has a, a, a Chrome plugin that you can use to, to kind of find the cadence of people's emails. So once you find that email and you can confirm that when you send it, it's going to go to the right place, then it's a matter of like, for me with WeWork, I said, Hey, I've been doing this project for like this many years. I've met a lot of people from your facilities. They've been big fans of my project. I'm a big fan of your company. Here's Ryan Seacrest talking about me on his radio show. And yeah, just having like that social proof. And then saying, here's a way that we could work together. I could show off your space by meeting people at your places. And then he kicked that email down to someone else in the company. I hopped on a phone call with them. We did a partnership, a trial partnership together. And then that led to, led to a paid partnership. But yeah, I think it's the finding the right person, finding their email using one of those sites. And then just like quickly, like if it's like two or three paragraphs, like very short, how can you provide value to that company or that person? And like one proof or like example as to why you're cool or why they should pay attention to you. I don't think if I, if, if I didn't have the radio segment with Ryan Seacrest, which I had done in July of 2018, I don't know if that WeWork door ever opens. And now, like I'm fortunate, I have Kelly Clarkson show clips. I have like all these different things that I can send to people. But on top of that, the other thing is following up. Like if you send an email to someone and they don't get back to you and you think, oh, they're not interested, like on to the next company, 
you're just you're screwing yourself from the start like it's the third and fourth emails that are going to get you where you want to go and that has proven true for me in public speaking in landing some of those gigs it's proven true for yeah i i can think about two of my currently potential biggest gigs in public speaking being a result of following up so Nothing ever happens in the first note. Send the fourth note. That's so key because that's something I need to work on that I've never been good at, especially like reaching out to people for the podcast. I send the one message into the into the cloud and I hear nothing back and I move on to the next one. But that's definitely something I need to get better at. Is there is there like a time frame you like to wait, like 48 hours, a week, 10 business days, like something like a certain amount of time you wait before following up so you don't come across as like annoying or anything like that? Because I think that's the biggest fear I have with the follow-ups. I don't want to annoy this person. It's like, what's the cadence kind of look like for those follow-ups? I think the first one, so you send your first email and then I think probably like three days after that, if you don't hear back from someone and then maybe five days after that, and then maybe like another five days after that, and then like seven. So yeah, and there's, I have saved emails from my time working in sales of people like tweeting about me being like, your employee is really annoying or stop, stop emailing me. Like, and you learn from sales, which is why I'm extremely happy that I had that experience that you, you built up a thick skin and you just remove yourself from the emotion of it. Like, I like to be conscious of people's emails and I don't like to get emails from random people. But if I think that I can provide value to them, like I don't feel as bad about that. And also I really care about what I'm doing. So my care for pushing this forward is greater than my fear of this person thinking I'm annoying. Like you just, you just like a switch in your mind. Like you just remove the emotion and you're like, it's part of the process. It's part of the game. Like you just have to do it. Um, and then over time, like it becomes, like I said, kind of more of a system than anything else. And you're like, I send 100 emails, maybe 20 people will get back to me. Of those 20, maybe three will turn into a gig. And you're like, I just have to continue sending emails. I have to continue doing it. And then like, obviously, you try to iterate on that process to make sure that if you're sending 100 emails, you're sending it with a more effective message that maybe you're getting 50 responses. And maybe those 50 responses are turning into 10 gigs. And that's going back to that imitation game. You have all these dials that you're just trying to turn and tweak to, to get to like the maximum efficiency as possible. It's just a numbers game at the end of the day, right? Like you see just like how you whittle those numbers down. Like you're not going to send your first email and get a response. I mean, you might, but odds are it's going to take a number of emails before things really start to click in. And is there, like you said, you work with brands and schools. There's a lot of brands and a lot of schools. How do you determine who to reach out to? Is it just brands that are kind of aligned with you? Or like, what do you look for when reaching out to a company? In terms of schools, I feel like every school is an opportunity because I have spoken to so many students who are socially anxious and who are not the type to go up and make a connection with someone new or like they... they are, are shy and they, they don't want to put themselves out there. So I know it's a message that students need to hear about how you can go out and create connections with people and be more confident about doing it. So with them, it's like every school under the sun that's a college or university is, to me, going to get, like I literally had a whole list of all this, every single university in Pennsylvania, and I was just working my way down the list, emailing them, and then I was cold calling them, just being like, hey, I'm Rob, I have this project been on the Kelly Clarkson show, 
I speak about this like framework for getting to know people based on my experience. Like, do you, do you do anything like this at your school currently? I landed a gig that way. So, and then it's like, in my mind, if I have all these schools from Pennsylvania, then it's like, oh, well, I've spoken at this school and this school in Pennsylvania. Like, why hasn't your school talked to me yet? And you just kind of grow and be the biggest version of yourself as possible while still being true, being true to yourself. Uh, and then companies, it's the same thing. Like, in my mind, human connection is something that everyone needs practice with. And it's the same thing because I've seen, I've talked to people who are in their 50s, their 40s, their 30s who struggle with it and they don't have like effective ways for getting to know each other. So when it comes to corporations, I typically now will look for like what they're doing around diversity, equity, and inclusion. So I can think about like, how can I share my experience with them so that they can incorporate this more in their workspace? But then I also will think about like, okay, realtors, they seem like someone that should get to know people. Like if you have an hour with a client and you want to establish a good relationship with them, how do you do that? Like I've been able to do that 4,600 times. So what can you learn from my experience? Or nurses, if your patient's on the bedside, how do you form a good rapport with them in that short amount of time? And what questions can you ask to get to that point? So I'm starting to like think about these different things or like if a conference, human resources. So it's like thinking about who could use the skills that I've developed and then trying to go out and find those those opportunities. I don't know if outside the box thinking is the right way to explain that, but it's just like looking at yourself and your skill set from many different angles. Cause I feel like people, sometimes they don't have the ability to kind of look at themselves from a higher level perspective and they kind of silo themselves. But it sounds like you've been able to step outside of that silo and, like I said, look at yourself and your skill set from a lot of different angles, which allows you to pitch yourself in an authentic way to all these different brands. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's I mean, it requires a lot, of, a lot, like just a lot of like a, another way that I think about it in my mind is like Jenga. When you're playing Jenga and you're like you're trying to poke the right piece to get it out so you can put it out and like get to the next turn. There's just a lot of poking and a lot of trying to figure out what it is. And I think when you're required to do that and like you do things that don't work, you have to force yourself to think beyond that. And that's when you start to think about, okay, like what other angles are there to me? And it does really make you explore yourself, which again, it's part of the fun of the journey. Yeah. It requires a level of, a level of self-awareness as well to do that. And so I'm curious, like, how do you develop that skill one self-awareness and you also just speaking with you now you seem very intentional in your words and you kind of think through your what you're about to say before you say it from what i can tell how do you kind of develop those two skills of being intentional and self-aware because i feel like those kind of go hand in hand i think that's one of the benefits of human connection and something that i think probably people don't think about and i'm sure you've seen an increase in your ability to do so through podcasting like just as i'm intentional you're intentional about taking what I'm telling you and then segueing that into another topic that you had on your mind because you've become a better listener by talking to people and you've become better at thinking about your thoughts and expressing them because you've probably done it at times where like, ah, maybe that wasn't the way I wanted to say that or whatever. And you get better over time. And for me, that's why I say like when I met with Jim Brady, now I'm probably a much better conversationalist than I was back then. Like I'm probably more relaxed with it. Um, and just have more experience with sharing what I know. But it comes from doing it 4,600 different times. And that's why 
I think it's so important for people to be intentional about connection. Like a thing that I'm starting to step into is the this idea of like why do not why are people not setting goals around intentionally meeting people? When it comes to numerical goals, like why are they setting the number of days that they want to go to the gym or a number of books that they want to read a year? Yet when it comes to meeting people, they're just willy-nilly about it. When meeting those people could lead to a much greater value in your life. Like one of my long-term goals is to be a professor at a university and teach a course where students pair off and share each other's backstories one-on-one -on -one for one hour each and learn from each other as a t opposed to a textbook or a PowerPoint slide. Because I'm like, if you are meeting 50, whatever, I don't know how many class periods are in a semester, let's say 50 for the sake of it. If you're explaining your story 50 times, you're going to get better and more effective at explaining it. Like when we started this podcast, you're like, who's Rob before this 10K friend? Like I was able to walk you from childhood to high school, to university, to career, up to this is when I start. And the reason I was able to do that is because I've done it with so many different people and I've like practiced and I've gotten that elevator pitch down. Not even that it's a pitch, but I just have like a natural way of explaining it now. But yeah, long-winded answer to say, I think a lot of it comes from just the practice of talking to 4,600 different people and getting better with it every time. What are some of those other, some of the biggest lessons you've learned from talking to 4,680 different strangers? Like, that's obviously one thing, being able to eloquently explain your story in a concise manner, being able to listen better. But like, what are some of those things that really, other things that stick with you over the, that you've learned over the course of this journey? Thematically... I talk about this on every podcast, but I, I say like the big thing I've learned is that no one really knows what they're doing with their lives. Everyone is just doing the best they can with the resources that they have. And typically when I say that, a lot of people are like, phew, like he, all right, cool. Someone else thinks it. And I, I think a lot of people put pressure on themselves and they think that everyone around them has their life figured out, but they don't. And I just, I, I think it's that no one has their life figured out. And obviously, like, none of us are operating with 100% knowledge of how to move forward. We're all looking at someone else to help us or how they've done it. And I've become very comfortable in that space because I feel like people assume that eventually you're going to get to this place where you're 100% confident and 100% comfortable and you 100% know what your path is going to be. It just doesn't happen. And I don't know why we don't know that yet. So I've learned that because I've met people who are like 60 years old and they're like, yeah, just in the last few years, I've really figured out who I am. And I'm like, well, you should tell the 22 year olds who are graduating from college thinking that they're supposed to know at that age. So that's been a big mindset shift for me. And then gratitude is another big theme that comes up for me a lot. Like having two parents who are still together having two older siblings who've been really great resources in my life. Like my parents have created a loving environment for me to grow up in. They encouraged education. Like my dad sat down with us and helped fill out the student loan forms for university. Like, and I could grow up and go my whole life thinking that every person's parent does that for them until you talk to people who have had to drop out of school or weren't able to go to school because their parents took the money that they had for education and they blew it on some type of addiction that they had and like what kind of relationship that creates not to say like they still have like a loving relationship with their parents but it's just different and you start to understand how big the spectrum of life is 
and where you fit on it. So yeah, like I have gratitude for the fact that I can walk because I've met people who've been paralyzed in accidents and they're now working towards regaining that ability. And that's something that I'm like, okay, well, like it's a gift for me to be able to go up a set of stairs and not have to think about that. It's a gift for me to be able to drink a beer and not think about, okay, like how am I going to have to get to the bathroom now? Because this is going to make me have to like, there's just so many things that we don't think about because we're not exposed to them. Uh, or like a guy that I met last night, the one who told me he was proud of me is from Palestine. And like, he can't travel. Like if you look at the, the strength and, and the, the weakness of passports, literally where you're born can determine what of this beautiful world you can see. Like some, I didn't choose to be born in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. I just came into the world here. He didn't choose to be born in Dubai to a Palestinian family. It's just how the cards fell for him. So a lot of gratitude as well. And the thing that I talk about, the framework for getting to know people that I share at universities and corporations, it's FORD. It stands for Family, Occupation, Recreation, and Dreams. And it's another way of just saying like we're all the same, right? Like it doesn't matter if I'm talking to someone in Brazil or Mexico or Canada, like they all have a family dynamic. They all have an education and like a job that they do to pay the bills. They all have hobbies that they enjoy outside of work and they all have dreams for what, where they want to go in their life. And that's been the benefit of talking to people from 85 different countries is seeing that that formula or that framework holds up every single time. And it's like, ah, we all, we really are just all like chilling here, trying to have a good life with ourselves, with like a family that we feel loved by and like a career we feel, feel fulfilled by. So those are a few of the things that, uh, the bigger ticket things that, that I've learned. And then there's books, there's music recommendations, there's TV shows. As an example, Squid Game is obviously a very popular show. And I'm talking to this dude and he's like, yeah, but have you watched Alice in Borderland? And I'm like, no, I don't even know what that is. I've never heard of it. And he tells me it's very similar to Squid Game. And then I go and I watch the trailer on YouTube. And all the comments are like, thank you, Squid Game, for making me watch this show as well. Like, this is such a great show. And I've yet to watch it, but I likely will. And just by having a conversation with that person, eight or whatever hours of my life are going to change as a result of it. I ask this question on every podcast, and I'm sure you might have a different answer because when you're talking with these people, I'm sure you're sharing your story with them as well. So you do this a lot, but I'm curious how often you reflect on the whole journey, not just Rob's 10K friends, but I'm talking like going all the way back to that kid in preschool who marked up the walls with a stuffed animal to now 4,680 people that you've met. How often do you look back on the whole journey? I think because I do get to talk to people like, and I do get to do podcast like this is an opportunity for me to reflect I, I get to do it I guess often but I don't know if I deeply reflect on it that much even things like when I was a guest on Kelly Clarkson's talk show obviously a huge moment for the project super nervous for it like super excited to tell my friends and family and stuff but you do the show and it comes out and you're like okay on to the next thing and I think Part of that is my ambition and my entrepreneurial drive is like, it's great that those things have happened, but you can't let your foot off the gas. You have to keep going. So I think I struggle with that, but I have been better. Like if I landed a big speaking engagement, I'll crack a beer that night because I'm like, hey, this deserves to be celebrated. And 
I'm proud of myself for getting to that point. So I'm going to take this small little thing to do that. And I think it's like even having little moments like that can be a good way to celebrate. I haven't done anything like huge where I'm having a steak dinner or anything to celebrate whatever piece of success of the project. But yeah, the small things like that. And I think I've become a lot more of a content person through my project as well. I think I know the answer to this question already, but I have to ask it anyways. In college, you used to think that if you were normal, that is failure. Are you normal? What would college Rob think of what, where you are right now? I would say I'm unique. And I'm not just saying that because I think that of myself. I say it because I hear it from other people who are like, I've never heard of someone doing a project like this to meet 10,000 different people. I, of course, get compared to, to Humans of New York, which I'm flattered by. I'm a huge fan of what he does. And I think it's really important. And he's been a big inspiration for me. But the idea of meeting like 10,000 people and really sitting with them and sharing that time with them, I don't know, it, it is a unique thing. And I would say that my college version would be proud of myself. Like I wanted to be the type of person who would leave that safety of consulting to take a leap into something. And honestly, sometimes I've thought about my path and been like, has it taken like six years to just start to scratch the surface of stability? because I wanted that for myself in the past? Like, did I want that like story of struggle and whatnot to get to this place? And like, did I manifest that for myself? And that's why it's taken so long. And these are the stories you can tell yourself, right? But uh, yeah, I don't know. I've just always, I wanted to live an interesting life. And I was always really attracted to people like Yes Theory or The Buried Life was a big one for me. I didn't know of Yes Theory until I started this project. or Casey Neistat, if you've ever seen his Make It Count video, big inspiration for me in college. So those people living these adventurous lifestyles was the thing that I wanted to do. And I'm in that now, like I am in the adventure and that comes with the highs and it comes with the lows. And I've gotten pretty good at weathering them. So yeah, I would say I'm proud of myself. I think looking back on it, I feel like college Rob was probably a little cocky in the way that he said that. So I wouldn't say like, if I'm normal, I'm a failure. Um, Cause I feel like there's, again, there's just so many other people dealing w- with things that like college Rob didn't have to deal with to, to have that mindset. But yeah, I, I'm proud of the uniqueness that I've created for myself. And I like that you mentioned the buried life. I feel like no one ever mentions them. You know, I feel like, the, and like, I don't know many people that have heard of those guys. And like, I heard of them because I was working a job. I absolutely hated doing door to door. And I would literally take breaks from going door to door. And I would go to the local bookstore and I found their book and I read their whole book when I was supposed to be working, going door to door. Cause I, as I hated what I was doing. Um, but I'm going to jump to my last question here. My last, and I ask this to everybody on every podcast and I like to flip the script for the last question. So instead of me asking the questions, you asking the question, but it's not to me. So pretend you have a crystal ball. You can ask this crystal ball any question. You'll get the 100% honest answer. What is one question you want to know the answer to? Big picture question that came to my mind is, is world empathy possible? Because I think that that's something that is my impact on this world, is like creating empathy for people, both by having those individual conversations with them and by sharing their stories for other people to see. And people realizing that 
hey, like I just read this story about someone's life who's wildly different than mine. And I say all the time, I don't believe in world peace, but I do believe in world empathy because I think for peace, it has to like everything coexists together. But the way I describe it is like, if you have a breakup and then your like ex starts dating a new guy, you're like, screw that person. Like I'm better than them. But you can understand why they would be attracted to that girl because you were attracted to that girl. So that's empathy. So I do believe in world empathy. And I think the way that you get that is through communication. And like I said, I have that goal to become a professor after this project. And I want to do that at a university and I want to prove that it's valuable. And then I want to spread it to other universities. And I would like there to be some sort of like thing built into education where people are realizing that there's more to their immediate circle of friends or there's more to their immediate life experience. And if they can do that, then gradually we can obviously like increase the amount of empathy. But could we ever get to a point where it's there across the world? That would be cool if we could. And I would like to be someone who contributes to that. I like that. I've never heard it framed like that. World empathy. I really like that question. I never know what to expect when I ask that. I never know what people are going to ask. And I think that is a, that is a very good question. Um, but I want to thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast, sharing your story. Uh, where can the people find you? I want you to plug anything and everything you got right now. Yeah. And then I have a question for you on the podcast. Um, people can find me on Instagram at Rob's 10 K friends or on TikTok. Instagram is where I keep track of everyone. TikTok is, I post like tips or more behind the scenes of, of who I am. So, and then I have a website robs10kfriends.com, which really just redirects you to Instagram. And for speaking, I'm in the process of creating a website thanks to someone that I met, and that's going to be roblawless.com, just my name. But yeah, if people want to interact with me, the best place to go is Instagram. Awesome. I'll make sure it's all linked in the show notes down below. And now before I do my outro, should I have a question? Yes. So I've done a lot of podcasts, and I would say you are the most prepared of anyone that I've ever done a podcast with. So I know that you knowing about me writing on the walls in preschool or you knowing about me saying that normal is a failure requires a ton of research. So I want people who are listening to this podcast to know how much effort that requires from your part because it's not easy. It's not like you just showed up before this and went right into this. I would assume it's like hours. So I want you to tell me and your guests like what that process is like how much preparation went into you just having the ability to ask such poignant questions first off thank you i really appreciate that that means a lot like i've gotten because i do a lot of research that's something i pride myself on so people have mentioned it before no one's ever asked me to talk about it like this and two it means extra a lot because i mentioned to you before i'm working with a podcast coach and one thing they've been really on me to do was like really kind of hone in each individual interview because like if I title it one thing and someone comes for something and the whole interview is something completely separate, like they're like, that might be part of it. But like I used to do someone's entire story where it's like, we'd start like that first question I asked you, I used to stretch that into like 20, 30 minutes of the show. And so they're really on me to try and focus on one individual part of this. So part of this, a lot of what I tried to do was talking about how you were able to go full time and some of like tactically how you made that work was kind of my mindset going into this. And so that means extra lot to me that I, you were, I was still able to find a way to marry that research that I was used to doing and knowing all those little things about your background to what I'm doing, to trying to narrow the focus of each episode. So that really means a lot to me that, that you still, you picked up on that. So thank you. Um, but 
to answer your question, how much time does it take? It does take a lot of time, probably. Yeah. Like hours, three, four, probably trying to hone that in as well. Um, like just make, so I'm not spending three, four hours every time, but yeah, probably three, four hours. And that's even longer than that really. Cause it's, I download every podcast you've ever been on. I listen to when I'm in the gym. I listen to when I go for a walk, right? Anytime you say anything that I think is interesting, I write it down. And then, um, yeah, gym work. I also do I'll play FIFA and I'll turn the sound off and I'll just listen to podcasts and pause it every time you say something interesting. Um, so yeah, somewhere between probably three to six hours total. And then that's dumping it all into a document, organizing it also makes sense. And then marrying it to the, the section that I want to focus on being how you went full time talking to strangers. Um, so yeah, it's, it's definitely a long process, but I really appreciate you, uh, you calling that out. So thank you. Yeah. Yeah. That is incredible, man. Like that guy was proud of me. I am proud of you for doing that work because it requires so much. And you have to be passionate to be able to do that amount of work for just a one hour, 16 minute conversation with someone. So I'm excited for you because I think that's what separates the great people from the good people. So just good on you. Very proud of you for doing that work. Thank you, man. That, that really means a lot. I appreciate it. And uh, thank you as well for for coming on the show, giving me the opportunity uh, to do this. Um, like I said, I'll make sure all your all your socials, everything's linked in the show notes down below, so people can go support you on your journey to meeting ten thousand people, which is awesome. Um, but yeah, so it'll be linked down there. If people want to follow me, that'll be linked down there as well at the Jacob Kelly. Feel free to come and say hello. Uh, my DMs are always open. As always, today's podcast is powered by True Fan. Thank you once again for listening, everybody. We'll talk soon. Mm-hmm.